Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. We are, of course, beginning a new series this morning, having completed the book of Jonah last week. So if you'll take your Bibles and be finding John chapter 8, the next series will be entirely in the book of John, but we will be going to different portions of it. John 8, beginning in verse 48, is our text today. On one occasion, Jesus was traveling with his disciples and he asked them the question, who do people say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they answered in various ways. Some said John the Baptist. Others said that he must be one of the prophets like Jeremiah or perhaps especially Elijah. The Old Testament, of course, ends with the prediction that Elijah will return before the great and terrible day of the Lord. You may recall that Elijah, unlike others, was the prophet who was taken home to heaven in a whirlwind without experiencing death. And therefore, it was natural for people to think that Elijah was going to return before the Messiah, so perhaps Jesus is Elijah. Well, the question of who is Jesus is still the greatest question you will ever have to consider. And the answers to that question are still as varied as they were when Jesus first asked them. In spite of the fact that we live in the Bible Belt, With a church on every corner, there is still much confusion about the most fundamental of questions. Get this question wrong, and it really doesn't matter what else you get right. And that is why when people come knocking on your door to spread their brand of religion, this is the way you need to guide the conversation. This is where you need to steer them. What do you believe about Jesus and who he is? When they are talking about their brand of spirituality and what it means to them, this is the question that you need to lead them toward. Many today are bypassing this question altogether. As long as their brand of faith encourages them and makes them feel better about themselves, then such doctrinal questions about who is Jesus really doesn't matter in their mind. But it does matter. It matters greatly. And so after asking the disciples, who do people say that I am, Jesus gets personal with them and he says to them, but what about you? Who do you say I am? And that question is far more important to us individually than simply knowing what the world says about Jesus. So beginning this morning, we're going to spend the next eight weeks looking at some statements Jesus made about himself, particularly about his person and his work. John's gospel, as you probably know, is unlike the other three. The other three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called the synoptic gospels because they are all very similar, but John's gospel is unique. Beginning, of course, right there in chapter 1 with this tremendous prologue where he immediately talks about the deity of Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
John also records a series of miracles that are designed to lead to this same conclusion. After all, in chapter 20 of his gospel, he states his purpose in writing. He says, there's a lot of other things I could have written, but these things that I have written, I have written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing, you might have life in his name. One of the other tools that John uses to bring us to this conclusion is a series of statements that have collectively become known as the I am statements of Jesus. These are statements made by Jesus himself that are followed by a phrase of some sort, a metaphor, to help us see who Jesus is and what he has done and will continue to do. Many of them, most of them, dealing with his saving relationship with us. So Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then finally, I am the true vine. These texts will be our subjects over the next two weeks. But this morning, we begin with an I am statement that is not traditionally included in this series, but I like to include it as, frankly, the most important and as the foundational element to all of the others. So look with me at John chapter 8, beginning in verse 48. And our title is very simple this morning, Jesus is God. Now, I know that most of you would say, I already know that. Most of you would say, I already believe that. And I'm grateful that that is true, but we need to know why, because we are going to have to have conversations with people about this very thing. John 8, 48, the Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you. And by the way, that word truly, truly, both words, is the word amen. The word we heard sung just a few moments ago. So amen amen means truly. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, And yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So so the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was... I am. 
So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Now, when I talk about Jesus being God, when I use the word deity, that is what I am talking about, that Jesus is, in fact, claiming to be God. Here he says it very clearly with the words, I am. That is a difficult statement for us to understand because to us, it seems like it is incomplete. We expect Jesus to say, I am something or I am someone, even as he will in the other ones we will look at in the weeks to come. But we're going to see this morning that this indeed is not incomplete. And in fact, in reality, it is an all-encompassing statement of deity, which we need to understand and ultimately embrace. And we are going to see that the initial audience did indeed understand at least that part of what Jesus was saying, though they did not like it one bit. Now, the first thing we noticed this morning is that the deity of Jesus is seen in the, testi- in the triumph of his testimony. Now, as you can tell by the first phrase in verse 48, we are jumping into the middle of a conversation, a dialogue, an argument, if you want to call it that, between Jesus and the Pharisees, who were, of course, the religious leaders of the day. So by the time we enter in verse 48, this dialogue has been going on for quite a bit, so we need to back up a little bit and understand what's taking place. You will notice that earlier in this chapter, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. So we will come back to that in just a couple of weeks. Eventually, the discussion turns to Abraham, who was the father of their faith. But Jesus says, if Abraham were truly your father and you were his children, you would do what Abraham did. And that in part would mean that you would believe in Jesus, which they are clearly not doing. And so Jesus tells them that their genuine father is not Abraham, but in fact is the devil, who is the father of all lies, and therefore, since they prefer lies... They are of their father, the devil. And you can imagine how that must have gone over with them. And so by the time we come to verse 48, the situation is certainly heated. The kind of discussion that a lot of people seem to love, but many of us want to avoid. But again, due to the importance of the subject, we cannot avoid it. So fresh off of his charge that they are children of the devil, the Jews once again attack him personally. Isn't that what we're good at today? I mean, if he can't win an argument on the facts, then we just attack people personally, which seems to make up a large majority of online debates. In verse 46, Jesus says, which of you convicts me of sin? Well, they couldn't refute the claim that he is making, so they attack his character. And the only thing they can come up with at this point is that he was a Samaritan. He was, of course, not a Samaritan, and this is the only time this accusation is made against him. You may remember the woman at the well who was a Samaritan, and Jesus went out of his way to talk to her. She immediately recognized him as a Jew. She said to him, why are you a Jew talking to me? So Jesus certainly wasn't a Samaritan, but that was their only explanation to the fact that he was loving of the Samaritans. The Jews hated the Samaritans. They were half-breed heretics in their minds, half Jew and half Gentile. 
And therefore, they wanted nothing to do with them. But Jesus was different from the average Jew. While they went out of their way to avoid Samaria and any Samaritan, Jesus was willing to talk with them and show his love and compassion to them because they needed the hope that he had just like anybody else did. And the Jews must have twisted this message of hope that Jesus was willing to deliver to them into the idea that he was actually one of them, which he again was not. But then they lay another claim against him, this one more serious. They claimed he had a demon, though this is not the only time this charge will be laid against him. Jesus does not argue when they make the ethnic slur that he is a Samaritan, but he does respond to their charge that he has a demon, and his response is the triumph of his testimony. That because of who he is and the way he lives, he is testifying to the fact that he is in fact God, and his testimony has been clear throughout this entire discussion. He was not there to glorify himself. He was there to honor and glorify God. He was proclaiming the truth in a loving way, which always honors the Father, and yet they were doing the opposite. They were dishonoring him, which in effect meant that they were dishonoring the Father, whom they say was their God, because they were treating him shamefully for simply proclaiming the truth, all because they did not understand the truth and certainly weren't willing to obey it. Now, I'm sure in Jesus' day, just like today, there are preachers or there were preachers and teachers who did so to gain a name for themselves and a reputation for themselves. If that was indeed what Jesus was doing, he was certainly going about it the wrong way. I mean, if you want crowds to follow you and like you, the best way to do it is to tell them what they want to hear tell them that they are doing everything exactly right and their religion is the way to God. Or tell them that if they make a financial investment in your ministry, it will result in personal prosperity. That message certainly seems to be working today, at least for those who are flying around delivering it on their private jets. Certainly don't tell anyone anything controversial or confrontational. They will not heed the message in that case, and they will dislike you. So the way to their hearts was certainly not found in telling them that they were children of the devil. No, Jesus was not teaching to glorify himself. He was proclaiming the truth in honor to his Father. And that has been his testimony throughout this entire discussion. The Father had sent him. He said what the Father told him to say. He did what the Father wanted him to do. And he glorified the Father in and through that and everything else. That was his testimony, not just during this discussion, but during the entire time he walked the earth. And what a difference that would make in our own lives and in our own community if that was our testimony as well. If we always did that which pleased the Father if we always live to speak the truth in love and to honor and glorify the Father in all that we said and did, which means that we were always obedient to his will. Now, I realize, of course, that we can't be sinless. Jesus was and is the sinless Son of God. So we certainly cannot be sinless and perfectly complete all of that. 
But I'm simply saying if that was our desire and if that was our goal to live in this manner, our testimony would triumph as well. And frankly, that is what people want to see. They don't want to just hear what you have to say to them doctrinally about who Jesus is, as important as that is. They want to see that believing in Jesus makes a difference in the way we live our lives and that our lives glorify God, which then would be vastly different from the average life of people that we see around us. Jesus is triumphing in his testimony. He is testifying to the fact that he is, in fact, God. And we have that same or similar responsibility to testify to a nation that is largely no longer believing in God, that has largely turned its back on God. We have a responsibility to triumph in our own testimony and speak the truth in love. Though they may not listen to us, though they may despise us, we need to do it anyway. The deity of Jesus is seen in this text in the triumph of his testimony. He testified of the truth and he backed it up with his life. Secondly, we see the deity of Jesus. That is, Jesus is God. We see the deity of Jesus in the triumph over the tomb. In verse 51, Jesus again points out the way of eternal life to these unbelieving Jews. He says to them, if you will believe what I'm saying and you will obey, that is, you will follow me, then you will never experience or taste death. What a wonderful promise from our Savior that by following him, we have victory over death. And that promise was extended to these religious leaders who were scoffing at the very things they said. In fact, that is why then they say, we now know that you have a demon. You must have a demon to make such ridiculous claims. And so this was the last straw. They were Abraham's descendants both physically and spiritually in their minds. They could not conceive of anybody being greater than Abraham. He was the father of the Hebrew nation. And no one would be foolish enough to claim that they surpassed him. Yet that is exactly what Jesus is doing. Though, of course, in reality, Jesus was not making himself out to be anything. God the Father was doing that. They might have misunderstood a lot of what Jesus was saying to them, but this part did not go over their heads. They knew Jesus was claiming to be better than Abraham, for Abraham, as great as he was, was dead. And no one was disputing that. Abraham, in their minds, and we'll see differently in a moment, but Abraham, in their minds, had not conquered death. He had died just like everybody else in the Old Testament, including all of the prophets. Where was Jeremiah? Dead. Where was Isaiah and Ezekiel or Daniel? They were all dead. Well, what about Elijah, you say? Elijah, we mentioned, did not see death. And yet even Elijah did not come with such a preposterous claim to say that he gives eternal life to anyone who would believe in him. Can you imagine Elijah going around and saying, if you believe in me and follow me, you will not taste death. And yet that is exactly what Jesus was proclaiming. So how could he make such a claim? How could he say to them, how can he say to us, that if you will believe in me and obey and follow me, then you will never experience death. Well, first of all, he could say it because he knew he was going to triumph over the tomb 
himself. He knew there was a day coming very soon that he would be crucified. And at the end of this chapter, the Jews had finally had enough, and they pick up stones with the intent to stone him to death. And yet, he walks out, the Bible does not tell us how, but he walks out with not a scratch on him because we know that his hour had not yet come. That phrase is found often in the Gospels. But eventually, his hour would come, and he knew that. When he would be betrayed by Judas, when he would be crucified and buried in a borrowed tomb, when he would rise on the third day, conquering death and the grave, and thereby paving the way that we might do the same if we put our trust in him. And he knew all of that because he is the resurrection and the life, and because he is, he can give such life to others. Death is, without a doubt, the most feared thing we face. People are afraid to talk about it. They're afraid to be around it. You've heard people say, well, I just don't go to the funeral homes because they can't handle it. We don't know what to say to others when they're going through the death of a loved one because it seems that whatever we try to say is mere empty words. We're just uncomfortable being around the whole idea of death. I was playing golf with some friends for a couple days this week and while on the trip, one of the guys got word that his brother, his only brother, whom he is very close to, had gotten some very bad news physically, and there was nothing the doctors could do about him. He is going to die. And my friend, of course, stayed the rest of the day with us and then left very early the next morning to be by the side of his brother, but we didn't know what to say. It was uncomfortable for the rest of the day. He didn't make it uncomfortable for us. It was simply we didn't know how to respond, and we didn't know what to say. Because again, when we try to say things, it just comes across as platitudes. But for the believer, for the Christian, Christ has won the victory and given us hope to replace the fear and to give us faith in the midst of doubt. That is why Paul could write to the Corinthian church, but now Christ is risen from the dead and become the first fruits of those who were asleep. For since, man, for since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. That doesn't mean everyone's going to be saved through Christ. It simply means that all who are in Christ will live. So we have nothing to worry about if we are believers in Christ because his resurrection guarantees our resurrection. We'll certainly talk more about this when we get to the I am statement where he says, I am the resurrection and the life. But Jesus was the first fruits, that is the first one to conquer the grave, and therefore he has the right to give this promise to others. And what a blessing it is to know that we will never experience death. You say, but wait a minute, I know I'm going to experience death, and yes, you are. Unless Christ returns, we are all going to face physical death, but that is not what Jesus is talking about here. He is talking about spiritual death. We will not die spiritually, rather we will live eternally when we place our trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord. And of course, the Pharisees didn't understand what he was saying. All they could think about was physical death. They were assuming that Jesus was saying that you can live here on this earth as is forever and ever. Even though they did believe in the idea of a resurrection, that was not on their minds during this dialogue. They did not have the faith to believe 
that actually Abraham was not dead. Remember I said earlier that they said Abraham is dead and so are all the prophets, but the reality is they are not. Jesus elsewhere says that he is the God of the living. And therefore Abraham has not died spiritually. He is alive and well. And Jesus is making that same promise to all who believe and follow. So even when we die physically, it is not really dying. We are simply passing from one life to the next. Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Yes, our body is going to die, but our spirit immediately goes to Jesus. And what a difference this makes in the life of the believer. It frees us to live, knowing that we have conquered death through him. It strengthens and encourages us to live through a troubled marriage or to face a broken home. It encourages and strengthens us when we get bad news from the doctor, even like I said, as my friend's brother did this past week, to know that death is not the end. I can face tomorrow as we sing often at Easter because... He lives. Jesus' triumph over the grave gives us the strength and hope to face anything on this earth because we have the promise of eternal life with him. And he can only make this promise because he is God, because he has triumphed in his testimony and he has triumphed over the tomb. Thirdly, we notice the deity of Jesus is seen in his triumph over time. This is where we come to the I am statement, which is our focus. Jesus tells them that Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Did you notice it says my there? It does not say he rejoiced to see the day. Jesus says Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Again, he is making some very bold claims in this dialogue. Now, the Bible is not specific about how Abraham saw the day of Christ, whether he was given a revelation or vision from God, or whether he saw it by faith. Many believe that he saw it on that day when he offered Isaac as a sacrifice on Mount Moriah. But the important thing is that he welcomed the coming of Christ. These Jews would have done the same thing if Abraham was truly their father, but they didn't understand what Jesus was saying. Jesus, you're not yet 50 years old, which is a round number and maybe even the number of retirement age in their society. Be nice, wouldn't it? So he's not saying, they're not saying that he's literally 50 years old. We know that he was in his early 30s at this time. They're simply saying, you're not old enough to have known Abraham. There is no way. Abraham lived around 2000 to 1900 BC, and we are talking here in the 30s AD. So nearly 2,000 years have passed since Abraham lived and died. So how could Abraham have seen the day of Jesus and rejoiced? That was a perplexing question for the Jews, but this time they understood the answer from Jesus. Before Abraham was, I am. They could not mistake that Jesus is taking to himself the I am of the Old Testament. So let's go back there. You got your Bibles open? Let's go back to Exodus chapter 3 and see what was on their minds when Jesus made this statement and see what Jesus was referencing as he makes this statement. 
Now, you recognize that Moses has just had his burning bush experience with God. God is calling him to return to Egypt and lead the children of Israel out of slavery. But as you might remember, Moses is not exactly anxious to go. He has all kinds of questions and excuses. And in verse 11 of Exodus chapter 3, he says, Who am I to to say that I should go to Pharaoh? Or who am I to say has sent me to Pharaoh? And God responds with the promise of his presence, that God will be with him. And then he asks a second question. Look at verse 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me what is his name, what shall I say to to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Moses is not just asking for a name, though he certainly is doing that. He wants to know something about the character of God. A name in those days said something about the person. When a parent named a child, it was either descriptive of the parent's wishes for that child or prophetic of the personality to be manifested. So Moses was wondering what he could expect from God. I am was the greatest name for God known to the Jews and was treated with utmost reverence by them. They would not even speak it. It is said that when a scribe was copying a text and the name of God, they arrived at the name of God, the scribe would take a new pen to write the name of God. It was said that while in the synagogue reading the word of God, if they came to this name of God, the person reading the scripture would not read the name of God, but would simply bow his head in worship and everyone else knew what was next and they would bow in worship with him. The name that could not be read or spoken, Jesus was claiming for himself, and this was blatant blasphemy in their eyes. There is no doubt at this point in the dialogue what Jesus was claiming for himself. If they had missed other things that he said, and they did, they did not miss this. He is claiming the eternal nature and characteristics that belong only to God. He did not say before before Abraham was, I was. He said before Abraham was, I am. And while I mentioned earlier that this statement seems incomplete to us, it was not incomplete to them. They would have immediately gone in their minds to Exodus chapter 3, And they would have said to themselves, this man is claiming to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You and I live, of course, in a time-sensitive world. Everything we do is based on a clock. We have appointments at certain times and we try to keep them and we expect others to keep them as well. We get impatient when people waste our valuable time because they are late. We expect something to begin and end on time, especially church, which is why some of you have already checked the time. 
We are simply accustomed to living in a world that is based on time, and we don't know anything else. And that is why it is difficult for us to truly understand the fact that Jesus triumphed over time. He has always existed. He was never created, and he will always exist. He lives outside of time, for he simply is. And even John begins his gospel with the eternality of God. In the beginning was the Word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. So for those who claim that Jesus never actually said he was God, that that was just a title thrust upon him by overzealous disciples, I would point them to John chapter 8, where that is clearly what he is doing. He is making himself out to be God here in words that are very clear, and the crowd understood it, and that is why they were ready to stone him. When he said before Abraham was, I am, that was it. Ironic that if you go back to the very beginning of this chapter, we find Jesus saying to them concerning the woman who was caught in adultery, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Now, stoning was the prescribed punishment for blasphemy, according to the book of Leviticus. But that, of course, was to be done during a judicial trial and a formal hearing, not the mob violence that we are on the verge of here. And while people may claim that Jesus never ascribed deity to himself, this group of Jews certainly knew that he did. There is no other explanation for their violent intentions. The deity of Jesus is seen in his undeniable claim to be equal with the great I am of the Old Testament, such that he is either God or he is the most self-righteous, pious man to ever walk the earth. Or as C.S. Lewis famously said it, he is either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. Those are our only options. Jesus is not merely a good teacher. He cannot be merely a good teacher because he claimed deity for himself. Jesus is not merely a prophet sent from God. He cannot be merely that because he claimed deity for himself. Jesus either is God as he claimed to be or he is an imposter of whom we have no desire to follow or listen to. Those are the only two options. We're going to see in the weeks ahead as we look at these other I am statements much about who Jesus is and the work that he is going to perform on our behalf. But this lays the foundation. He is God. He is the great I am. He is eternal. And having understood these claims then, what is our response? Do you want to pick up stones to stone him? Not literally, of course, but figuratively, you want to join in with these religious leaders and say, how dare him make such a claim? Or do you want to take the option of Thomas, who said, my Lord and my God? And if that is the option you take, that Jesus is God and he is your Lord, then there is no other option left but to respond to him in obedience He cannot be God and Lord, and yet we live our own lives. If he is God and he is Lord, then we follow him. And as we do, we enjoy the wonderful promises that we find in this text. That though we will die physically, we will live with him forever. 
Let me pray. Father, we do thank you for sending your son, Jesus, who is and always will be God, to die in our place that we might rise with him and live forever. I pray this morning that we would not just make a theological statement that Jesus is God, but we would really believe that. And having believed it, we would live in obedience because of it. And that you would give us opportunities to have these kinds of conversations with those who live around us or are in our family who say such things as Jesus was a good teacher or a great prophet, but fall short of calling him God. We've seen this morning that that is simply not an option. So we thank you that you sent your son that we might be saved and we rejoice in the promises that you give us both now and forever. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing. Earlier I referenced the dialogue between Jesus and his disciples where he asked that second question, but who do you say that I am? And of course, Peter on behalf of the disciples answered and he said, you are the Christ the son of the living God. And I pray that's your testimony as well. You're dismissed.